Welcome to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast, where we explore the conscious use of technology. Listen in to hear thought leaders and other guests discuss the human relationship with technology and learning to thrive in the digital era. Hosted by the author of the international best-selling digital self-mastery series and being at work, Dr. Heidi Forbes Usta. Welcome back to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast. I'm very excited to introduce to you someone that I came across recently and his work around digital ethics. And I'm so excited to learn more about his work along with my digital selfers today. So welcome, Kenneth. This is Kenneth Bowles, and he's coming all the way from London today. Welcome. Thank you very much. Good to be here. So how did you get into this space? Tell us a little bit about who you are and where you come from. Sure thing. So let's see. So I'm a designer by trade. My background has been in interaction design, user experience design, and I've worked for a range of companies in the tech sphere. I've worked for startups, dot-coms, governments. I worked at Twitter for three years. I was design manager here in London, heading up that team. So I've got plenty of experience building technologies. And it was only fairly recently, maybe the last two or three years that I realized there was this yawning gap, I think, in our industry's knowledge around ethics. I had some background in it or at least interest in it. I don't have the training. I'm not, I don't call myself a proper ethicist. I think that title should go to the people with the credentials, but, um, you know, it's, it's certainly been a topic I was interested in and I had the luxury of a bit of time and space to learn a lot more about that field and to try and then transfer some of that knowledge to the community. But as I say, I'm a technologist by, by trade. I think hopefully that gives me an advantage over some of the more abstract philosophers uh, in that I'm hopefully listened to by the tech industry so I can try and effect some change there. So trying to bring those two worlds together uh, is essentially what motivates me today. I love that. And it's very similar to my story. And I think that a lot of us come from that space of having worked in technology. And then just maybe it's the the empath in us that we sort of realize there's something wrong here. And there's something that's not being acknowledged. It's that it's that sort of taboo space of what's the impact of what we're creating? And how can we make sure that it's created in a way that's ethically done so that we're not destroying humanity, but rather complementing it? Right, exactly. And I think, you know, obviously the the news cycle has changed significantly now. Now this is becoming a an issue that has public awareness, that has press awareness. But going back a few years, we were still in a phase where anyone who was speaking out, uh, you know, to criticize the path of progress was deemed, you know, a Luddite, was was deemed someone trying to hamper this wonderful wave of innovation. So I think it's been easier to raise these issues now that there is that light shone on them. Certainly a couple of years ago, even, it was still quite a difficult thing to do. And I have enormous respect for the critics and academics who have been plowing this furrow for decades against the grain of, of public sentiment and certainly industry sentiment. And it's, it's pleasing to see that some of their ideas are actually now starting to be taken a bit more seriously. Absolutely. And I'm sort of curious about your take on it. And I think that what we've seen a lot is sort of the binary approach of, you know, either all technology or no technology. And what we're realizing now is that technology is so embedded in everything that you you can't take that binary approach. You have to really distinguish sort of between the good and the bad and the pieces that are sort of somewhere in between. And what does that mean? What's your take on that? Well, I'm going to echo the words of a fellow called Peter Paul Verbeek. He's a philosopher of technology in the Netherlands. 
And I really like Vibate's take on this, which is that ethics should accompany technological progress. It doesn't have to necessarily directly oppose it. Now, there will be times when it absolutely should, of course, but we should see it as something that accompanies the way we build products and services. It shouldn't be a checklist at the end. It should become more of an ethos, a lens through which we see the world around us. Because as you as you hint at, that idea of, you know, we shouldn't really separate what humans can do from what technologies can do, because these things act together. We become these hybrid interwoven actors. And that takes a shift in thinking away from this idea that's been predominant in the field that the things we build are just neutral tools, right? And therefore, it's not really our problem if they're used for harm. That doesn't work because the things we build affect how people can interact with society and with each other. So it is now incumbent upon us within the industry to start recognizing and anticipating some of those impacts and doing what we can to, de- to design better systems that reduce those harms. But don't you think there's still the human in that process? It's not that, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying about the, the technology not being neutral, but my approach is that the technology itself is actually still neutral. It's just that we need to recognize the human in the, in the design process and the impact that we can have in creating something that is not designed for harm, or that it also, if it has the potential to do that, that we we provide the tools to teach the users how to avoid that harm, whether it's to themselves or to others. So it's it's more about recognizing the human in the process and how we can influence that rather than the inanimate object itself. Yes, I think I think you're right. There is a risk that we potentially become a bit paternalistic and say, you know, maybe go too far with that line of thinking and say, well, it's up to us to educate the public on how to use technologies responsibly. And I wouldn't want to diminish the agency of these people. I mean, these, you know, these are smart, motivated people across the world in all sorts of different circumstances. Some of them will absolutely have ill intent, right? Some of them will want to harass and abuse using the systems that we build. Our job then, of course, becomes to try and hamper those people as much as we can. But you're absolutely right. I think there is perhaps a tendency, maybe the pendulum has swung a little too far, there's a tendency to blame the technologies and the technologists and to diminish the user's role in this as well. So I'm very interested in getting those folks involved in a wider conversation. It's not just for us to solve. This should also be a democratic, a regulatory, and a societal change in how we approach technologies as well as a technological one. There's a broader conversation that that has to happen outside the walls of Silicon Valley. Absolutely. And to that point, there's, you know, we've been hearing a lot more about what's happening in the US. And there's some conversation here. But of course, the US is very, it's always been very insular in terms of understanding what's happening in the rest of the world. And I've very fortunate because I've lived on both sides. And I, I'm actually both a Swedish citizen and an American citizen. And, and sort of, I get that mixed experience, but I've also done a lot of work with the European Commission, but I've been outside of it for a while. And it sounds like you might be a little more connected to what's happening there. Can you share a little bit about what's going on in terms of the conversation of regulation or, you know, what's happening in that space? Because I think that's really important to understand from the perspective, what can we do and what, you know, where conversations need to be happening? Sure. This is obviously a, you know, a very large topic. In the EU, the ship has sailed on regulation. It's going to happen. It's coming. There is a strong case that the industry deserves it. GDPR, your listeners will be aware of, the General Data Protection Regulations, that was the first step. 
we will absolutely see further regulation from the EU around, say, provenance of ads, re- you know, revealing sources of funding for advertising. There may be further antitrust, anti-competitive action mm-hmm. taken against the tech giants. And there is the public sentiment to support that. There is a fundamental, but potentially quite subtle, but still fundamental difference in the default mentalities of, say, a company like Germany towards tech companies and their roles in controlling data and using that responsibly compared to, say, California. And that pressure is coming up through representatives in the EU and and actually also in in the US as well. So we're likely to see more. The UK is already talking about increasing regulation on, you know, to prevent things like fake news. Um, there are a lot of movements around the new copyright directive in the EU, which is divisive, shall we say, and um, may not be completely one battle yet. But yeah, there's going to be plenty more. Now, on the US side of things, I think the tech industry is is essentially getting flack now from both political wings. And so whatever happens in the next series of elections, I think it's likely there'll be moves in that direction as well to regulate the field. But there are some analysts now suggesting that these regulatory frameworks are going to differ so strongly between the EU, the US, and and particularly China, that we'll actually end up with three sub-internets, essentially that that will make this global internet we have today pretty much incompatible with those regulatory regimes. And we'll end up building these regional sub-internets or not, not, not necessarily by intent, but fragmenting in that way where the US has a different approach to regulation and user data and so on. The EU potentially has a tighter hand on that stuff. And then China, of course, has a background where the public and private line is significantly blurred. So uh, rules around data flow and surveillance and things like that may be significantly different there. So there's going to be a lot of change, and it could be quite fundamentally challenging to this monolithic internet that we have today. Well, yeah, it's interesting. I haven't really heard that perspective yet of the three sub-internets. And I wonder if that's even really feasible with the way things work. Because when people set up their own, you know, private VPN, they can bypass those things. So in some cases, sure, you can create regulations, you can create rules, but, you know, the cat's out of the bag. So it's kind of just how much can you regulate? And then those aren't the only markets. There's so many other markets that are, you know, that are growing and changing. And, and that's just the internet. Think about all the other things, you know, that are technology related or that rely on the internet to function. I mean, this has always been one of the techno utopian promises of the internet that it roots around things like censorship. It's not true, unfortunately. It's, it's, it's been shown not to be the case. There are centralized points of vulnerability, particularly the DNS, uh, you know, the domain name system. Mm. If you take down a DNS, you essentially remove the website, even though it's still hosted somewhere. And then the ISPs as well. All it takes is, you know, a government official with sufficient clout and, you know, the legal power to go in and, you know, install a tap or to say, well, take this website offline. And it gets done. So governments are starting to fight back against that utopian dream, if you like, or as they might see it, a dystopian dream. So, you know, China already has a very effective great firewall. It's obviously takes a lot of, uh, you know, human power to to keep that thing monitored and policed. But um, I, I, I think the idea that, you know, national governments and states and regions are obsolete or don't have that kind of power has been has been rather rebuffed, I suppose, by the last five or 10 years. Mm-hmm. 
Interesting. Well, I guess we'll all see how it plays out and and、mm. how that impacts us when we are, as myself, I'm you know I'm moving back and forth across these different markets constantly. And so, how does that impact the you know the global businesses and the you know the global nomad entrepreneurs and suitcase entrepreneurs? What happens in terms of how do you manage your business? And if you're not necessarily You know, it's not necessarily a question of of data security or you know whether you're good or evil. You're just trying to do your job. You're just trying to do your business. How do you think that's going to play out?、Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm obviously, as your listeners will be able to tell from my accent and while、well, you mentioned my location, I'm currently in a country that is five weeks away from leaving its largest trading partner, and we don't know how that's going to happen yet. We've got, you know, we don't know what format that takes. There is clearly a global retreat from, you know, the, the ideas of free trade between nations. There's an increasing nationalistic focus, there's an increasing protectionist focus. So you have to see these things in line with that political context as well. But yeah, I think these things are going to get significantly harder. The idea of a global nomad relies upon, you know, visa regulations, things like the Schengen area in the EU, and these things may not last. We may see, a, you know, a, a retrenchment from that. So. Yeah, I mean, your guess is as good as mine. I think it's going to get more complicated before it gets simpler. Geez, I'm not looking forward to that part. <laughs> <laughs> no, nor nor am I, to be fair. But you know, the realities of of where we are politically are sort of catching up on us a little bit. Absolutely, and I mean, obviously, we're I'm living in a country right now that everything is up in the air. We、right. may not have a five week timeline. We're basically waiting for the next election to see what happens, and and,、right. and just hope that、uh, we get a little more stability in whatever happens next. But it's partly about engaging people, and you know, one of the things that I experienced in, when living over in Europe is. Recognizing that you've got over nine million Americans who live overseas and they vote,、mm. but their vote isn't counted in the presidential election unless they're registered in a particular state. So, you've got nine million Americans whose vote don't even count. Which, you know, and those are the people that have a global perspective and recognize the impact of the U.S. outside of the U.S. So, it's an interesting. Conundrum, I guess, is the best way to describe it, yeah, as it、sure、to、is. what's <laughs> happening in the future there. So, I want to do a little bit of a just a, a shift to learn a little bit about. You've got this book, Future Ethics, that came out this year. We're now into 2019, so in in 2018, tell us a little bit about the book, Future Ethics, and what was your mission with that, and where is it going? Sure. So let's see. So as I as I alluded to earlier, I was very keen to try and. Ground some of the great work that's happening elsewhere outside of the tech industry. Some of it's in academia, some of it's in art. Futurists,、um, you know, lots lots of folks have been looking at these questions. You know, the philosophy of technology as a field is,、uh, you know, seventy years old, and to try and ground some of that great work and contextualize it for working designers, product managers, engineers, and so on within Silicon Valley or within tech companies wherever they are in the world. And I'm fortunate enough that I think I can speak to both of those folks and be understood and and listened to, hopefully. So my job, as as I saw it, was to try and translate the field of ethics, which can seem, you know, it's very,、uh, it has this this notion of being tedious and abstract and a lot of you know dusty Greeks, but of course it's not like that. You and I know that ethics is a vital and real topic. It's about how we live our lives every day. How do we choose to exist and How do we govern the choices we take? So that's really, you know, terrifically important. So trying to bring 
those ideas into the everyday world of the technologist to say, you have the power to start having these conversations within your organization to push for the kind of change that you want to see. So it's about trying to educate people or equip people with the tools to have those discussions and to win those discussions. It's about teaching people to change their design processes, their product development processes, to make sure that ethics is considered at all stages throughout that development. And particularly, it's about trying to anticipate the risks that might lie ahead in the things we build. I'm particularly interested in the ethics of emerging technology because we have more scope to affect change there. Mm -hmm. The things that are already out, I mean, they're already out. We can, of course, try and improve them. But the ethics of you know, Facebook's newsfeed, for example, it's pretty much already been set in play mm-hmm. upon release. However, the ethics of you know, mainstream facial recognition technology, we've got perhaps five years to figure that out. And so let's get cracking. The best time to have this conversation would have been 20 years ago. The second best time is now. So we have an opportunity if we make the right choices to try and mitigate some of the harms that might arise with technologies like that or autonomous weapons systems or you know, various various other you know uh, self-driving cars, all these uh, emerging technologies. So let's have those conversations now so that we can get them right. So true. And I think it's such a vital conversation to have. One of the vital pieces that I think is important to consider, and I come from the also the organizational development and system side, and really looking at the culture of organizations and how do you perceive ethics and how do you perceive the impact of what you're creating on society, rather than just focusing on sort of the engineering and the, you know, the sort of bells and whistles of design. You know, there's a certain part that's the user experience, but beyond that, it's looking at the bigger picture of how it impacts systems. And I I think that part is is a conversation that's not happening enough. And it's so critical to combine what you're doing with the systems conversation and the cultural change in organizations. We need to work together, basically. Uh, (laughs) I'm I'm like, my brain is popping with all kinds of ideas and different projects that we could do together. But I think that, you know, this, this space that you're talking about is so key. And if you can, the other piece is being that bridge to be able to to know the technology and be able to relate to the people that are developing the technology so that they understand the language of the impact of what they're doing. And I've, I've found that that is, is such a key role. And there's very few of us that actually get that. So we need to teach more people how to bridge that. Absolutely. And along, alongside that, there is a reframing, I think, that needs to happen that we can help affect that change. Tech companies have been fantastic at focusing on the user. That's been the you know the mainstay of the user experience industry, the user-centered design process for two decades now, and the industry has lapped it up. The problem is most of these harms aren't falling on users. Mm-hmm. The harms of technology are falling on society's most vulnerable, people who are affected by the decisions that we make, but may not be the people we're designing for, communities, societies. Um, you know, groups of employees or sectors. And so we need to help the industry shift their focus, not lose sight of the user. Of course, the user will always be important. A lot of the time, the user's paying for the thing, of course, anyway. But to consider also the impact on broader society. So there's a shift that's starting to happen now, I think, in the tech industry. But we don't have the techniques, we don't have the vocabulary and the tools. And that's where that systems perspective comes in. Because, of course, you know, society is one large system, uh, you know, a social economies, our cultural economies, our political economies, and our economies are these 
difficult systems, these dis- difficult things to understand for techies who've been very much laser focused on the user. They need to broaden their tool set to better address those individuals or those those groups of people. So true. And in the green room, you were mentioning that you're, you've been doing some workshops around this. How do you find that this is being received? Do you find that it's a difficult story to tell to get organizations to understand that there's a return on investment and there's a value for them to actually have this conversation and to bring in this type of training? I think that conversation is getting easier, even in the two or three years that I, this has been my full-time focus. Mm-hmm. Um, partly as a result of that press attention that I mentioned, partly as a result of you know folks in the industry realizing, oh no, we've taken some missteps here. And there's I'm not saying that's, it's, it's not as simple as just how do we assuage our guilt, but there's clearly a recognition that we ought to do better. So those conversations are getting easier. So I'm seeing quite a good appetite. I'm, it's early days for me to, you know, to see whether essentially I can turn this into, say, a consulting practice, but it's looking promising. I think there are uh, enough folks out there recognizing this. The question about business value is, is an important one and actually one I want to touch upon a little bit. There is, of course, some business value in foregrounding ethics within your company in terms of you know reputation, in terms of customer retention, potentially in terms of margins, but also in terms of keeping your employees happy as well, mm-hmm. making sure that they are infused by the values that you're trying to espouse and therefore want to stay around. They want to refer others, you know, all this sort of good productivity uh, stuff. But I'm also a little bit wary of relying too strongly on making a business case. A business case should be made, but if that's all we rely upon, if we say the only reason you should be doing ethics is because it's good business, because you get a you know a, a bottom line you know dollar impact, then essentially you're training yourself to fail, to lose ethical discussions. Because the next time someone comes along with a larger dollar value for doing something unethical, you won't have any you won't have a leg to stand on. So I think one thing I'm trying to do is to train people to also have rhetorical and emotional and logical arguments, not just financial arguments, for this stuff. We have to recognize that business should be about making the world and society and communities better. It's not just about making a boatload of cash. I mean, of course, that's very nice, but you know, I reject the idea, you know, the old sort of Milton Friedman Chicago school idea that a business's only purpose is to make profit. I think that's part of the reason we're in this ethical mess. Oh, absolutely. And I think that there's, you know, it, it becomes part of the sustainability picture of sort of what creates a sustainable organization that will last over time and have a positive impact. And as we know, you know, millennials, we're hearing more and more that millennials, they only want to work for companies that really think about the bigger picture. And it's, it's people, profit and planet. And, and the, the, all of those are balanced. And if you don't, if you only focus on one of those pillars, it's not a sustainable organization. So, I think that there's this is a great opportunity for opening that conversation in a different way. But I think there's still some of those Friedman-esque people that are part of the business decision to decide whether, okay, we're going to choose this workshop over this workshop. You know, do we do a, you know, marketing and social media? Unfortunately, sometimes we get balanced against that. It's sort of, you know, do you want to do digital marketing versus do we want to look at you know, digital ethics. Well, I don't know which one's going to make us money faster. To yep. me, that the ethics needs to be integrated into that digital marketing conversation. It's not an either or; it's and. I mean, obviously, I, I you know I, I fully agree with that. I think the public sentiment on this issue is starting to drive those changes as well. That folks with that 
bottom line above all mentality, they're starting to become a bit isolated. Their customers are not supporting those missions. We're seeing now the backlash against toxic tech firms. And, you know, in the UK, we've had, you know, toxic airlines and things like that who have been very well known for their deceptive practices. And customers aren't taking it anymore. They're saying, you know, this isn't compatible with the type of consumer I want to be, the kind of life I want to live. These values don't speak to me and I reject them. And without getting too into the weeds of climate change, it's obviously an enormous ethical issue. It's clear that the future of the planet might look quite different than it does today. And safeguarding things like you know, the environment have to become so central to businesses because there will be massive consumer pressure around it. And businesses that won't adapt to that pressure, I think, have no hope in that future. So true. So true. You know what? I'm so excited about this conversation. And I feel like we could talk for hours, quite frankly. And so I might just have to have you back. <laughs> but I, I want to make sure we touch a little bit on Kenneth and what you do in order to create a very positive environment for yourself. What type of technologies do you do to care for yourself and to make sure that you are practicing what you preach? Goodness. When you get into ethics, when you spend time thinking about ethics, it doesn't necessarily make you happier. I can say from experience, you start to ask deep, difficult, uncomfortable questions about sort of person that you are, sort of person you want to be. And then particularly when it comes to technology, how you relate to technology, are there practices that are harmful? I mean, like everyone, I'm trimming back some of my social media use. Like everyone, I'm trying to get out and, you know, remind myself the sea exists and, you know, take long walks and all that, all that sort of good stuff. My, perhaps my biggest point of dissonance right now is unfortunately starting this business trying to sort of consult with ethics, you know, a great deal of the interest is in the US. I'm in the UK. So I have to figure out a way to deliver value to the US without the CO2 footprint of flying there every month, which would be the easy way to do things. But um, so I, I actually spent some time this morning with a, an excellent carbon calculator that I just saw that had been released, which helped me, which, you know, scared me essentially when I looked at my footprint from last year. So I've set myself some targets for, I'm sadly booked up already this year to about the same level. But for 2020, I'm going to set myself a carbon budget. I'm going to try and keep below that. And that wouldn't have been possible without this stumbling across this technology. So I'm trying to shift essentially the focus of who I pay attention to, taking it a little bit away from my first while peers in you know product design and UX design and so on, and paying more attention to activists to you know environmental uh, environmentalists i suppose we call them and representatives of communities who have been overlooked in our society so i see i think that's an important part of broadening my horizons it's not a purely technological response but it's the the way i'm using technology to pay attention to the world around me that's really the thing that shifted i love that and i think that's a really important point that you bring out can you share the name of that uh, the carbon calculator do you know that by chance i will or I have to look it up. we can put I've it got in it the show hand. notes because it's. I think it sounds like a really a, a great tool that all of us could think about basically integrating, at least just thinking, be, being more mindful of what is our carbon footprint? What are we doing that, that and, and how can we do it better? One of the things that I love about doing a podcast is that I can do it, I, I can have conversations with people like you that are on the other side of the world and share 
this, you know, share your knowledge and share your gift of, of your wisdom with the rest of the world through the internet. And it doesn't require any travel. It doesn't require anything other than a good internet connection. And that's right. a really, really amazing tool for me because before it was traveling to conferences. And I mean, I still do a little bit of that for speaking and for connecting with peers to sort of for shared conversations. But my travel has gone way down since doing the podcast, and my reach has grown. So looking at different tools to be able to do that, I think is really exciting. And the reach that you get in, you know, people are listening to this podcast from their cars in Turkey. You know, I mean, they don't have to be they don't have to be here. And and that to me is such a beautiful thing to sort of recognize the capability of technology to give us that reach without having to increase our footprint. Uh, right. And we shouldn't lose sight of that. The, the idea of this liberatory potential of technology, it still can do all that sort of stuff. It's, it, you know, there's, there's a, a tech backlash right now, but I would hate for us to lose sight of the potential for technology to improve the human condition. We just have to work hard to ensure that that actually happens. Well, we're working on it. And it takes, you know, you and me and all the others that have figured that piece out and to to play that bridge role. And so I just want to thank you for being part of the, you know, the cheering team, cheering squad, and the people that are raising the red flag and saying, let's have this conversation and trying to figure out the better ways to do it. So, so thank you for doing that. And I want to make sure that folks can find you and find your work, because I think, you know, what you're working on is really a powerful stuff. And if you out there are listening and it's something that your organization has been curious about or wants to know more about how to to look at these things and bring this conversation to their teams, how do we find you and how do, how do people work with you if they, they want to in the future? Right. Well, the advantage of me having such an unusually spelled name is that I'm easy to find. So if you simply Google Kenneth, which is C-E-N-N-Y-D-D, you'll find my website, you'll find my Twitter, my LinkedIn, you'll find pretty much everything. But I would say probably Twitter I use quite a bit, at Kenneth. And then, of course, if you don't mind me plugging the book, Not at all. Uh, Future Ethics, future-ethics.com. That obviously is you know, a good crystallization of the lot of work that I've been doing. So that would be a really good entry point into my efforts to bring those communities together. Awesome. Well, I, we will definitely put all of that in the show notes so folks can find you. So if folks, if you're out there and you're listening in your car, please don't try to write that down. Don't worry. <laughs> it'll be in the show notes. Don't text and drive. Don't even try to write it down. I don't know if anybody even keeps pens in their cars anymore, do they? <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been such a pleasure and an honor to have you here today. And I just want to make sure that folks really recognize the work that you're doing and the value that it has in not just the marketplace, but in the greater system. So thank you. Great. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. So folks, if you've been out there listening today and you enjoyed the show, don't forget to sign up to listen to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss any of the great upcoming episodes. And it's been a pleasure to have you today. We look forward to next time. Bye-bye for now. Thank you for joining us for The Evolving Digital Self. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app now so that you don't miss a single episode. While you're at it, please give us a rating and a review and join the digital self-mastery movement to create more conscious use of technology by sharing it and telling your friends. Want to see where you fit on the digital self-spectrum and how it might be impacting your business and relationships? Get your free copy of Digital Self-Mastery today by clicking on the link in the show notes. 